won't go. Rebound taken by Igadala. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot by Remember That Guy. The podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Mike Breen has left the building, so you are left with me, James, and my colleagues. Diaz, back with you for another fun week, and we have the man with the second best beard in the greater Philadelphia area. Please introduce yourself. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed by that. It is, it is me, uh, once again, the very special guest, Xavier. And, oh, I love Mike Breen so much. I wish that his primary employer gave him more reasons to have great calls like that. Yeah, that's still, like, the greatest regular season basketball game I've ever watched. Well, with the, the significance of it, right? Because everybody knew the Warriors need to win this game if they're going to get the 73-9. and nine. And you knew the Thunder were kind of their main competition, not just to prevent that, but also inevitably ended up in that playoff series. And what I remember about that shot is this is like right after we all graduated. So I was still back with my parents for a year after that. And my sister and I were both watching the game and like woke my dad up with our screams. And usually he gets really mad at that. But this was one where he emerged from the bedroom, came downstairs and was like, oh, holy shit. All right. I'm, I'm glad you woke me up. This was this was worth it. So yeah, there we go. An all timer for sure. A phenomenal memory. But enough that one. Why don't you guys just tell me who's who's making memories for you right now? So as I referenced, Xavier only has the second best beard in the greater Philadelphia region. That is because the man with the best beard is actually not in the greater Philadelphia region right now. But he is getting shots up at the University of Minnesota's campus ahead of his debut for the Sixers with his glorious beard against the Timberwolves. Of course, I'm talking about not only number one in your program, also in your heart. Actually, number two in your heart because Embiid is number one. Let's be real. Be careful there. I, I heard that. He heard that. He heard that. He and, and I just want you Listen, to know he's, he's going to be expecting an apology. Joel, I caught it right away. You know how I feel about you, baby. You know how far back we go. But yes, James Harden going to make his debut tomorrow night. I'm just really excited to see how it works out because we're going to have this kind of mad sprint of 20 games to figure out what the playoff rotations are going to look like. Right now, it looks like Tybal is going to be that fifth starter. I feel like it should probably be Danny just because he's a better shooter. And then you can use Matisse as your defensive spark plug off the bench. But it's going to be really exciting. I am, uh, as a Philadelphia fan and longtime sufferer, I saw that Vegas has the line at the Sixers are only favored by a uh, point and a half tomorrow. And that feels about right. Like, I feel like this game's going to be annoyingly close. And it probably is going to be one that we annoyingly lose. But, you know, so stay tuned when you are listening to this two to three days after the fact to see if I was right or not, or if I'm just talking bullshit because, you know, now we have James Harden. So now we have the best team in the league. Hey, so I'm going to make a quick editor's note. I, I don't think I've ever done this before. The Sixers won 133 to 102 against the Wolves. Uh, Diaz will talk more about that, I'm sure, but I felt like we had to put that in there. Carry on. A real chance at winning the championship, which I say every year, and some years I mean it more than others, but this year I mean it a lot. It, it, it's, uh, it really feels like we have a good shot, so excited for the beard. The one thing I want to say to that is, uh, in reference to your ranking of Xavier's beard, I do think that's Jason Kelsey erasure. This is fair. But I think Xavier's, it comes down to what you want, right? Like there's a spectrum here. How well maintained it is, is a factor. And then also you have the length of it, right? So Kelsey, I think, has a longer beard than Xavier. Harden certainly has a longer beard. But I think that the care with which Xavier treats his beard is enough for him to just barely edge out Jason Kelsey. Now, 
if Xavier was stuck in an Oklahoma drill against Jason Kelsey, I don't think the beard's going to help that much. If we're strictly looking at the follicles on the face, I got to give the nod to my man Xavier. I just have to. I really do appreciate that. Yeah. That means a lot. When Jason Kelsey hears that, I hope he recognizes that it was a well-thought-out response. Jason, if you have takes, if you disagree, come on the pod. We'd love to have you. Well, certainly. I I have one name in particular. Uh, You guys ever heard the name Remy Lindholm? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) We're going to get one last parting shot in here with the Winter Olympics. Uh, Remy Lindholm is a Finnish cross-country skier. During the technically 50-kilometer cross-country event in the 2022 Olympics, I say technically because due to weather conditions, incredibly cold temperatures, negative 9 before the wind chill in degrees Fahrenheit, and 70 to 30 mile per hour gusts of winds, cold as hell. They're in spandex. Not a lot of wind resistance there. Not a lot of wind resistance. And Remy Lindholm became aware of that when at the end of the race, uh, well, he Came aware of it sooner, but he made us all aware of it when at the end of the race, he did need to immediately get an ice pack to thaw his member, uh, which had become frozen, apparently for the second time in his very young two-year professional career. (laughs) It's a 24-year-old who has competed professionally for two years, and he has twice had his penis frozen during competition. The first Uh one was earlier this year in Ruka, Finland. So the one other thing I'll say, the other thing I'd like to add, not about getting cold, it is about the warming up, and he said he was at least ready for that this second time after that first time when he had what he described as one of the most intense pains of his life. Oh, that's so terrible. I, when I first saw that, I just couldn't imagine it, and then I couldn't imagine that it was the second time happening. I would have given up and never tried this again if that happened to me once. Well, all I can think is... I hope that Johnny Knoxville and the Jackass boys were watching because if they're looking for ideas for Jackass 5, I think that's your inspiration right there. You don't need something else. Uh, I did also lie when I said there was only one other thing I wanted to add. I, w- I do want to make sure to put in, you finished 28 out of 61 competitors. With a frozen penis. With a frozen penis. Unreal. Unreal. That's what, that's what the Olympics are all about, really. And I'm glad that that is my final memory of these Winter Olympics. Uh, but Xavier, why don't, why don't you go ahead and take over from there? Yeah, so uh, the world is not in a great place. My mind has been jumping around a bunch of times, uh, and that is re- going to be reflected here. So starting with the positive, the Rangers are still good, which makes me happy. And Arsenal came back from a late deficit to win on a last-minute goal, which also made me very happy. But also want to give a quick shout out to the people of Ukraine. And for our podcast purposes, former world heavyweight Vitaly Klitschko, who is the mayor of Kiev, who stated that he was going to be staying and taking up arms to fight for his city and for his country. This is a guy who is a many times multimillionaire, could go do whatever he wants, but he is going to stay and do that, along with his brother Vladimir. And, you know, I, I saw that, and it's hard not to think about anything else rather than that. But, you know, just, you know, our, our thoughts are there right now and not really here, which makes things difficult. But, you know, don't want to give it too much of a downer. So one thing I did see that what, what will be a good segue to what we're going to talk about today is... Uh, so well, before, before, before we go, I just want to say, you know, Vitaly Klitschko, for people that don't appreciate... He was the only heavyweight that really gave Lennox Lewis problems during Lennox Lewis's reign. That was actually when he fought Vitali. That was when Lennox said it was time to get out. 
you know, I'm certainly not surprised that he's willing to take up arms for his country. This was a guy that the, the, he lost the fight to Lennox Lewis because of a cut over his eye. They stopped it between rounds. It was a horrific cut. Like his his eyelid was basically just chilling, but he still wanted the fight. And like the doctors were saying, you know, you're going to lose your eyesight. And he didn't care. He just kept going around the ring. It's like a famous scene in heavyweight boxing, just saying, no, no, no. And the whole crowd, American crowd, gave him a standing ovation booed the Brit Lennox Lewis for saying that he thought he wanted easily. So, you know, Vitaly's been a metaphorical warrior in the ring for so long. Not surprised to see him willing to go to those lengths to to defend Ukraine. So certainly, like you said, Xavier, our thoughts are with the Ukrainian people. But, you know, we're here to remember guys and uh, distract from from what's going on in the real world. So please, uh, with, with your, your segue that you're going to do. Yeah, so the last thing I wanted to talk about real quick so Grambling State uh, University just hired Art Bryles. And I, thought this was, I thought this was going to be a positive segue, Xavier. Not, not, <laughs> not the best. It's not the best. Yeah, you're not getting off to the best footing here. <laughs> and the Washington Post talked to Doug Williams about it. You know, for people who don't know, Doug Williams, the first black quarterback to start and win a Super Bowl and Grambling State HBCU legend. Probably the most important person in Grambling State history asked about this. He said, don't do it. (laughs) And they said, okay. And then they did it anyway. And he said, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. I'm out. If he would still support uh, Grambling, he said, oh, no, I can't do that. No, no, no. If I support them, I condone it. So the most famous player at this HBCU ever is no longer supporting his school because his school made a really stupid decision, despite him and everyone else telling them it was a stupid decision. I just want to come in with one caveat. You, you corrected to most famous at the end, which I do agree with, but initially you said most important. It's actually his coach, Eddie Robinson, is by far the most important grambling man. So I do just need to... That's fine. That's fine. You you set the record straight for all the times that I say things, you know, (laughs) so I just once want to step in and say one thing, uh, the namesake (laughs) of of the FCS Coach of the Year Award and Doug Williams coach at at Grambling, Eddie Robinson, an all-timer. Hey, you know what? Let's go ahead and get into the nitty gritty here, Xavier. You already alluded to the fact that this is a segue. And as our successful litigant last week, this is your call. So go ahead and take us into it. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about HBCU guys. Do you remember Ricky Weeks Jr.? Of course, of course. Are, are, we, are, are we going to this senior? Yeah, so one of the things that you know I really wanted to talk about while, while uh, researching this is I really wanted to get a baseball angle here because, as many people know, there is a big problem with diversity in, in, in baseball. Last year, only one player was drafted from an HBCU for baseball, and it's been, it has been steadily going down for years and years. So it's important to talk about, you know, the trailblazers of the sport. So I want to talk about Ricky Weeks. So Ricky Weeks Jr., born September 13th, 1982, in Altamonte Springs, Florida, just outside of Orlando. Weeks attended Lake Brantley High School, where he started as a second baseman. Weeks didn't have much, if any buzz as a, as a prospect. No offers uh, until one day he was spotted by a Cincinnati Red Scout who had come to a game looking for some, at somebody else. This scout called up his friend, who was the then coach of Southern University, Roger Kador. The scout tells Kador, 
this guy's going to be a player. You have to, you have to offer him. So Kador does. Southern is the only school that offers Ricky Weeks Jr. So he quickly commits. His freshman season, they start him off in center field, and he bursts onto the scene. He hits 422 with 14 home runs and 70 RBIs in 55 games, leading Southern to a 43 and 12 record, a SWAC championship, and an NCAA tournament appearance where they fall to Tulane and Ole Miss in the New Orleans Regional. Hey, um, question. I should know the answers, but how many teams made to the NCAA tournament in baseball? So it's a lot because they, they break it down into two different things. So the NCAA tournament is the first tournament that's uh, split up into regionals and then super regionals. So it's 64 teams and it starts off at uh, 16 regionals and eight super regionals. So it's essentially eight teams are put into a super regional which is at the host site of the number one team. The number two team hosts a second regional. And so it goes like one and eight, uh, and then two and seven, and they each go in little four-team pods. Eventually, they have the super regional, and at that point, those two teams go to the College World Series. Got it. It's one of the reasons why baseball is a little confusing for championships, because it is two separate tournaments with the College World Series which only has eight teams after they send the feeder tournaments into that. Yeah. It'd be like if March madness went down to the elite eight and then stopped for a couple weeks and did a totally different tournament somewhere else. Oh, awesome. And, and so uh, our good buddy Ricky Weeks jr. Makes it, but they lose to Tulane. Yeah. And so despite his season, his great season weeks in Southern mostly ignored by the wider baseball world. So coach Kador began a compa- uh, campaign where They would routinely send his stats to local newspapers and to national magazines like Baseball America to try and draw more attention to him. Uh, They even kept badgering the Team uh, USA Baseball to force them to let Ricky Weeks try out for the for the US the summer USA Baseball team. I mean, that's not this isn't too different from what people have to do today. Like now, they just do it on Twitter. If they had to put in a little more work back then, though, you had to actually look up where to send these things. You had to own a camcorder instead of just the phone that you will then tweet from it. And this should not be us old fogey in anything. It's better now. This system is better. better What we have now is better. This is not us lamenting that we have changed from that. It sucks that they used to have to do all that. We are also a pro NIL podcast, an extremely pro NIL podcast. Oh, yes. Yes. And that reminds me of the Oscar Shibway stuff, which I think is fantastic that the foreign player from the Congo uh, on Kentucky's team was finally, they were finally able to figure out getting his NIL stuff in order. And he was able to get his mother to come from the Congo for the first time to see him play basketball, which I think is fantastic. But back to Ricky Weeks, coach Kador later said, uh, there's always negative talk about HBCUs and what we don't have and that we weren't worthy. We had a special, a special kid in Ricky Weeks. And I went off on that director of team USA because he was wrong to deny Ricky an opportunity but once Ricky made that team, the director was apologetic. And I think that's awesome. So we appreciate hey man, we, we fucked up. So Ricky spends the summer after his freshman year with Team USA, and he earns a bunch of plaudits, and he's well on his way to proving to the baseball community that he could really play. Sophomore season, he moves back to his preferred second base, and he continued his fantastic play. He batted 495 this season with 20 homers and 96 RBIs 
in just in how 54 many games? games. 54 games. So, I mean, that's easy math then. You just multiply by three for a 162 season. We're talking about 60 homers and – What did you say? How many RBIs did you say? 96. Jesus Christ. Maybe 288 RBIs. 422 average. I was certain that was going to be the peak. Like, or 92. No, no, no. I'm saying 422 in college. I was certain that 422 in college was going to be the highest batting average we heard today. No, we went to 495. That's like Barry Bonds on base percentage levels. He goes 422 to 495, and he's just fantastic. Southern goes 45 and 10. Again, they win the SWAC. Again, they make the NCAA tournament. where They barely lose to crosstown rival LSU 5-4 in the Baton Rouge Regional before falling to Tulane again. So Weeks, again, uh, spends the summer after his sophomore season playing with Team USA. But at this point, he still doesn't think he's going to be a professional baseball player until right before his junior season, he gets an email from a buddy back home. In this email was a picture of the most recent cover of Baseball America magazine with the 2003 MLB draft projections. Weeks later said, quote, it projected me at number one or number two. I'm like, wait a minute, time out. I'm thinking the top picks last year got $3 million and you mean to tell me I'm about to be a millionaire? <laughs> all about that bag. That's, was, I thought you were going to say, oh man, and this, this acknowledgement from my peers and colleagues, no, I can get some fucking money. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. He, he knows what happens if you're drafted one or two. And from this, for this guy who had zero offers until last minute, had to have a a writing campaign from his coach to get any attention, get forced onto the the USA team by badgering the director. You know, this is a pretty big a pretty big come up. So his junior season, the Weeks is feared as one of the most deadly hitters in the country. In 50 games, he that's 479, uh, winning the college bat, uh, batting title for the second straight year. So there's uh, there's that regression we were looking for. So the thing is dropping off. They do pitch around him a lot this year so they walk him 46 times and hit him 15 times he still wait hold on in how many games he gets hit 15 times he gets hit 15 times in 50 games it's like every series if you play a three-game set with a team that's basically each school hit him once yes and this chase utley levels of like i i i'm i'm assuming at least a little bit he's got to be sticking the elbow in like because if he's being thrown at 15 times i'd assume we heard about like brawls he still hit 16 home runs and 67, gets 67 RBIs this season, along with 27 steals, which again, over the course of a full season, is 48 home runs, 200 RBIs, and 90 steals. Has an OPS of 1,600, <laughs> <laughs> and only strikes out 17 times. What the fuck? Oh, that's that's the wildest. That's okay. I'm sorry. No, hit by pitch is the wildest one. That is the second wildest number, and then it's a vast chasm until third. He was almost hit by more pitches than times he struck out. Yep, almost. Wow. So he leads Southern to a 44 and seven record this year. Another SWAC championship, another NCAA tournament appearance, and they're named the BlackCollegeBaseball.com HBCU National Champions. This year, Southern's finally able to win at least one game in the NCAA tourney, beating Southern Miss 5-3 in the Hattiesburg Regional before falling to Baylor and then Southern Miss again in a rematch. Despite this, Weeks is recognized with both the Golden Spikes Award 
and the Dick Hauser Award as the best college baseball player of the year, becoming the first HBCU player to win the Golden Spikes. As of this year, Weeks still has the D1 record for career batting average, minimum 200 at-bats. His career batting average was 465 in college. That's probably okay. absurd. <laughs> it's all right. It, it really is wild, the numbers he put up. But uh, So after his junior season, Weeks enters the MLB draft, and the Baseball America cover comes true. Weeks is picked second overall by the Milwaukee Brewers, only behind Delman Young. Weeks becomes the second highest drafted player from Southern and also the second highest drafted HBCU player in baseball history uh, behind only his fellow Southern Jaguar, Danny Goodwin, who coincidentally is also the only player to ever have been drafted number one twice when he was drafted number one in 1971 by the White Sox and then again in 1975 by the Angels. But I digress. Weeks then signs a contract with a $3.6 million signing bonus, making him a millionaire. And he could sit back and rest on his laurels. Weeks but does not wait rest. a second, wait a second. I mean, all these impressive college statistics, but what it sounds like to me is that Mr. Weeks had some more shit to prove. So Weeks does have some shit to prove. Unfortunately, Weeks' body gets in the way a little bit here. Weeks makes his Major League debut. Derek Torres gave birth. I don't want to hear shit. (laughs) Fair enough. So Weeks makes his Major League debut September 15th uh, of 2003, just three months after he was drafted. After a couple games, he gets sent down to the minors where he spends a season each with the Huntsville Stars and the Nashville Sounds. 2005 and 55 games with the Sounds. He hits 320 with 12 homers and 48 RBIs before getting his his true first uh, full call up to the big leagues. Even that is, he's putting up really good minor league numbers. I was, I, I didn't know what exactly to expect from someone that hit 465 in their college career. That's pretty good if we're saying that's like, what, is AAA? Or is he going, uh, that, so that was AAA. That was AAA okay. with, the, with the Nashville Sounds. So he gets called up, but unfortunately, he hurts his thumb uh, pretty early on, tries playing through it, but it really impacts his play at the plate. He only hits. 239 for the Brewers uh, during this rookie season. He does get get healthier and raises that to 279 in 2006. But then he hurts his wrist. And this wrist injury is pretty chronic. It it really impacts him in 2006 and 2007. Uh, He gets sent back down to to Nashville to rehab a bit before getting called back up again. 2008, he retains his starting position despite continuing to struggle. He, hit, he only hits 234 with an on-base percentage of 342, but he does score 46.6% of the time he gets on base. I mean, like, 342 is not a bad on-base percentage by any means. It's not great, but if you're doing exactly what you're saying, which is scoring that much of the time you get on the base and you're an average defender, that's, that guy fills a roster spot. Well, so it's interesting you say that because he had the second-highest percentage of scoring once you get on base in the NL, and if he was an average defender, that would be good. The problem was, Weeks was always more of a batter than a fielder. There it he is. He was considered one of the worst defensive infielders in the league. He had there the lowest, it is. He had the lowest fielding percentage in the NL at 975 and the most errors, 15, of all NL second basemen. He's not good in the field. That's it's part of why fielding percentage is such a bad statistic. Because any statistic where someone that's getting like a 97.5 essentially is doing badly, 
just a very bad sense of scale to compare people on. Oh, I agree 100%. But he, he is not good. He is not good. And this defensive fragility comes back to haunt the Brewers. In the 2008 NLDS, they are playing the Philadelphia Phillies. And in game one, Weeks makes a bad error that leads to all three of the Phillies' runs in a 3-1 win. Look at that smile that is cracking across <laughs> Diaz's face right now. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have to talk about who won in 2008. That's not important. Listen, because... Ricky, Ricky was one of our MVPs that season. <laughs> Unfortunately, things go for, from bad to worse for Ricky as he hurts himself in Game 3 trying to beat out a, a single and has to have surgery to remove torn cartilage from his knee that ends his season. <laughs> Things, this is like the fourth injury that Ricky's had in four years. It's not, it's, things are not great. Um, They're all different parts of the body, too. That's never a, a good sign. And, you know, he does recover over the offseason and has a really strong start to 2009. Uh, he had a 281, 333, 486 slash line in April of 2009, and, along with five homers, which had him tied for the team lead with Prince Fielder. Unfortunately, he does then tear a muscle in his, in his left wrist in May and misses the rest of the season. Jeez. Yeah. But Ricky's not done. He, he, he still wants to play. He comes back, and he stayed healthy enough to have his two best seasons in 2010-2011. Uh, he hits 269 in both those seasons. 2010, he has 29 homers and 83 RBIs. And in 2011, he has 20 homers and 49 RBIs and gets his first and only All-Star nom. Before he does then severely sprain uh, his ankle and misses most of the rest of the season. You learned to not say the words that triggered Diaz and I, and now you're just taking dramatic pauses before going into the, the, the daggers about their careers. Yeah, you Become know, a master of his craft. It's, it's too easy if you say, unfortunately. I, I have learned that. Unfortunately <laughs> and however, both kind of give it away. Tragically. <laughs> So after this injury, uh, Weeks' productivity does fall off a bit. He, he plays three more years with the Brewers uh, before spending a season each with the Mariners, Diamondbacks, and Rays uh, before retiring in 2017. Uh, Weeks is still very fondly, uh, fondly remembered in Milwaukee. He gets inducted into the Brewers' Wall of Honor in 2019. And many people might wonder, you know, what if they hadn't gotten hurt so often. But not Weeks. He, he, said, he later said, I'm proud of my career. I could think about how things in the big leagues could have been different, but that's not me. I'm mostly proud of how I wasn't recruited, developed in college, got drafted as high as I did, and became a big, a big leaguer. He, Ricky Weeks is, sees the positives, the, the positive in things. He's not, he's not hung up on what could have been. I, having several college records probably does not hurt. I'm not saying that to minimize anything, but like, if, if he wasn't still the all-time college batting average leader, maybe there's some different opinions. Uh, that does probably help it go down a little smoother. Fair enough. Uh, and, you know, after retiring, uh, Weeks runs baseball camps in Orlando. But one of the things that he's worked on a lot of is he's started working with groups to help grow baseball in HBCUs. So he teamed up with Andre Dawson uh, in 2020 for the Andre Dawson Classic, a three-day tournament that featured six uh, HBCU college baseball teams. Andre Dawson, by the way, one of only two HBCU play, uh, players to ever get elected to the MLB Hall of Fame along with Lou Brock. 
Weeks has also worked with a group that's called the Minority Baseball Prospects, and he participated in the inaugural HBCU Baseball All-Star Game in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, last year, 2021. This was really cool because a lot of the people, a lot of the, the kids at this All-Star Game really considered Weeks as one of their heroes, and there's some, really, cool, some really good quotes from this. Uh, so Southern University pitcher uh, Jerome Bohannon said of Weeks, We all look up to Ricky. Basically, as a god, really. It seems unreal how I played with him in video games, and I finally got to meet him. I mean, he, he batted four sixty nine in college. I made a making a flippant remark about that should not diminish from the fact that that's a superhuman number. He's a superhuman to ever do that in his life. Yeah, and and so Jackson State outfielder Chandler Dillard said, "You idolize guys like him growing up, and don't realize they're human." Because you watched him on TV and played with him in video games. I was so excited to meet him, especially since he went to an HBCU. That helps you realize you can do it too. You know, his, his old coach, Coach Kador, he was, he was also at, the, at, at this, uh, this event and chimed in. The Golden Spikes Award is the Heisman Trophy of college baseball. And for Ricky Weeks to win it, that should allow every kid from an HBCU to dream. Dream big, kids. So that is Ricky Weeks. Apparently a, a god of HBCU baseball, according to current HBCU players, but really a fantastic, absolutely fantastic player who, if not for injuries, maybe we could have seen those college skills translate a bit better, but Ricky Weeks doesn't feel sad for himself. I won't feel sad for Ricky Weeks. Also, he was voted sexiest baseball player uh, in the world in 2009 by Cosmo Magazine, so you know that also helps. That's the most important Again, accolade yeah. we've gone over. Yeah, these are these are the kinds of accolades that would make me be able to look back on a career and say, "Ah, eh, yeah, it was pretty good." <laughs> no complaints. And I assume this was like he actually earned it, as opposed to like, do you remember? I think it was Elvis Gerback won because like some copy editor didn't know the difference between Elvis Gerback and Rich Gannon. <laughs> I don't think that was the case. I'm pretty sure Ricky Weeks uh, uh, earned this vote by the readers of Cosmopolitan magazine. Well, I, so yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, were Elvis Gerbeck or Rich Gannon either per- particularly handsome? Rich Gannon is a pretty good-looking dude. I gotta yeah. be honest. Okay. Especially, especially in his day. Um, enough so that uh, my mom tried to hit on him one time at a Newark bar. Um, hey. <laughs> don't think it was successful. I, don't, I never got the end of the story. I mean, your name is not Justin Gerbeck, so I would say no, it was not successful. Yeah, it's not Justin Gannon. It's not Justin Gannon. Justin exactly. Gannon, my apologies. <laughs> Well, thank you for I, – I, I never knew the, the full extent of Ricky Week's glory. I just knew that he won the Phillies a playoff game on, on the way to the first championship of my lifetime, which was, which was pretty nice. But I'm glad that he at least got to enjoy some success before, before that, uh, that fatal error. It's, uh, like, uh, it's like you got one of those episodes in the middle of a season about your team winning where it's just from the perspective of another team's player for, for just that one 40-minute block – and it humanizes them so that there's just a twinge of, of bittersweetness in the viewer's mind when the team that they are rooting for does then go ahead and win. I do remember him getting injured in that game three, and I did feel bad for him. I didn't feel too bad because that was the only game the Brewers won. But I felt bad for Ricky, you know. But no, that was awesome. I enjoyed that very much. It's a high bar. But I do think that I am, I am qualified to meet that bar this time. Have either of you, and, and both of you might have, because you are also uh, slightly more sickos about some of the college sports uh, than I am. You ever heard of Clarence Big House Gaines? Big House Gaines. 
Of course. I never knew his first name was Clarence. I it only is knew Clarence. It is, it is Clarence Big House Gaines. Um, that's great. Gangster, his real name's Clarence. Eight Mile. Shout out. <laughs> I don't know. I just came to my mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's, I, we're, we're leaving it in. Clarence Big House Gaines. Big life. Let's just dive right into it. It starts way back when. It is uh, you know, impressive that he is someone that is kind of conscious of our memories. He's born in 1923. He is uh, super back in the day. So we're talking May of 1923 when he is born in Paducah, in southwest Kentucky. Given that Kentucky is currently the state that gives us such venerable senators as Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul, you can imagine that 1920s Kentucky was not the best place growing up for a, a large black man like Clarence Big House Gaines. Paducah is a very black community in southwest Kentucky. He, his dad is a manager of a nearby hotel, and he, he works as a bellhop at a different hotel, which did seem very strange to me when I looked it up. You couldn't get, you couldn't get the hookup? Rivalry. Um, it's I, that's the other thing. Like you come home, and how do you di- how do you guys diffuse when, when you're divided. in close quarters? Um, that's how he makes his money growing up. But how he makes his name is in high school. Uh, he is a true Renaissance man. He is salutatorian, so it's the number two grade in the uh, in the graduating class of 1941. He is also a accomplished trumpet player, which I'm a big fan of. Personally, love me some good brass music. And does indeed play both basketball and football. Football is what he's more well known for because uh, he is large individual, as his nickname might give away to you. Uh, so in 1941, he's graduated as this incredibly well-accomplished uh, guy. If, if he's graduating today, that's an amazing college application for wherever you send it. In the area immediately around him, however, it was still Kentucky in the 1940s. So there wasn't really anywhere he could even send the application. But the good news is that his family had a physician, and this physician was former classmates with a guy named Eddie Hurt, and Eddie Hurt was at the time a coach at Morgan State College. Morgan State College, uh, it is now Morgan State University, it was still Morgan State College in 1941, it was originally founded as Centenary Biblical Institute in, uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, but in 1890 it is made into Morgan, this is also when they start awarding non theological degrees. Uh, in 1895, this is something I found out, and it's a fun personal fact for me, they awarded their very first degree to a guy named George F.W. McMeachin. That's a fantastic name. It, it's great. And also, it's the street two blocks south of me, McMeachin Street, is named for. Uh, he's a wealthy Baltimore businessman who got his degree here at Morgan. Morgan had moved to its location in northeast Baltimore that it was for Eddie Hurt and Clarence Gaines' time. That's going to be in the 19-teens. In 1917, they moved there. There's a whole big hubbub because the community, frankly, the community that lives there has just as much problems with Morgan to some extent as they do now. They even try to take it to the Maryland Court of Appeals, but thanks to enough money from Andrew Carnegie, he just gave Morgan this massive trust to use for land. They, they were able to afford the legal fees and everything, and now they have a beautiful campus. And in 1929, the athletics for Morgan start to take off, and that is because of the hiring of Coach Eddie Hurt. Eddie Hurt was a mathematics teacher who also then became the basketball, football, and track coach for Morgan State College. And he was good at all of it. Uh, he, was, he was pretty good with track in the 50s, because he stays on for a very long time. In the 50s, Morgan track, uh, they run away from the competition. But um bum uh, <laughs> But at this point, early on in the 30s, uh, in, in basketball at one point, they're undefeated for four different seasons in his career as a basketball coach. So he's a phenomenal basketball coach. 
but it's football early on. That is just, it, it's amazing how night and day it is. Like Morgan State College did not really have any athletic bona fides coming into Eddie Hurt's time. And then they hire this mathematics teacher. And in the next 13 years, he wins eight of the CIAA championships. That is the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Uh, it's one of the major athletic associations for HBCUs. Eight championships in 13 seasons. So the MEAC uh, didn't two- exist yet, right? The MEAC is, so Morgan will play in MEAC later, but it is exclusively in CIAA during, and for those at home, that is the Mid-Eastern Athletic uh, Conference, which is another one of the governing sports bodies for a number of HBCUs. Uh, But we're on everything today during the time that we're with primarily Clarence Gaines. It's CIAA for all schools that he's involved in. So the CIAA championships, that's like the division championship, does also win two different black college national championships by the time that Clarence Gaines comes in 1933 and 1937. It, he went on a 54-game win streak at one point from 1931 to 1938. They're not playing many games every season, but it's a 54-game win streak. So Coach Eddie Hurt has developed himself a juggernaut at Morgan State College, and he's called by this friend of his living in Paducah, Kentucky. It's like, you got to check this kid out. Clarence Gaines comes to visit Morgan, and at this time, he's six foot three, and he's 265 pounds of muscle. So this guy has one inch and a hundred pounds of muscle on me. It is a mountain of a person, or a house. This is when he is given the nickname Big House, because he is big as a house, as one coach says when he first meets him. Absolutely massive guy, and Morgan just keeps running away. Uh, they are unstoppable the next couple of years. Uh, his very first three years on, they're going to continue to win CIAA championships. This is the most insane thing. In 1943, in five games, Morgan State College wins their games by a combined score of 166 to zero. They do not allow a point in a season of college football. There is the best part of that, maybe, is one game against Hampton in Hampton, Virginia, where the final score is two to zero. They had a game winning safety at one point. Um, the rest of the scores are complete blowouts. They, they are an absolutely dominant force. Clarence Gaines is their tackle at this point. A mountainous offensive lineman who is able to buy plenty of time for his offense that just runs the score up. Uh, like I said, they win those three CIAA championships. They win two more black national championships in 1943 and 1944. Uh, this is also while Clarence Gaines is on those other two teams that Eddie Hurt coaches just to have something to do in the off seasons. He's playing basketball, he's playing track, and he's running away with these Bears football team. The Morgan State Bears are stoppable. And then Clarence Gaines graduates. He graduates with a BS in chemistry, and he thinks he's going to become a dentist. This is his plan. He's going he's to take a little time, maybe get a job for like a year or two to save up some money for college, and then he's going to take this science degree that he has, going to be a dentist. But regarding that job, Eddie Hurt calls him in. It's like, look, I've got this buddy down in Winston-Salem State University. His name's Brutus Wilson. He basically is the athletic department there. He could use an assistant coach. I will, like, I can guarantee you this job. Go make money for a year as an assistant coach uh, in Winston-Salem State University, and, you know, then you can go do your dentistry thing. So Clarence Big House Gaines is all right. Goes down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And Winston-Salem State University, uh, it's, it's a very small school. It is a teaching school at this point. Its student body is 575 people, 75 of which are guys, because as a teaching school, it is overwhelmingly female. 
So that's like not a full football roster. I guess that's a full football roster. You also would have to have some crossover for the other sports that they try to put up. This is not a robust athletic department. Uh, that is because Brutus Wilson is at this time the athletic director and the coach of essentially every team. And so Clarence Gaines becomes the assistant to every single one of those positions for one year. At the end of that year, Bruce Wilson leaves to go to Shaw University. He's offered a new coaching job. And so Clarence, big house gains, takes the job at Winston-Salem State University. Which job, you might ask? Pretty much all of them. In addition to being a science teacher, he is now the football coach, the basketball coach, the athletic director, the trainer, the ticket manager. He's doing all of this for a salary of $1,800. That is about $20,000 today. So he is getting the athletes in the building, training them, getting them on the field, tending them to their injuries when they happen, and also putting the asses in the seats to actually watch them compete. And then during the weekdays, teaching. (laughs) That's insane. Unreal. For, again, the equivalent of $23,000. The highest his salary ever climbs at Winston Salem State University in his many years there, and there are many years there, uh, is 65000 And I, I could not find what year that was. I didn't quite adjust for inflation. But when we're here in 1946, when he starts his career as the coach of Winston-Salem State University, pretty much the whole school, that is an $1,800 salary for him. But you know what? Clarence Gaines sees an opportunity here. This, is, this has been dropped into his lap, and now he is this athletic department, essentially. And you know what? He's not bad at it. Honestly, he's, he's pretty solid. He does, again, both football and basketball for three years. With the football team, that last year, they go 8-1. and one. They, they win the CIAA championship. Uh, again, in a school that when he started there had 75 male students in a class. So uh, winning any football championship, I think, is great. And that is actually when he stops coaching football. Football has been his sport up until this point. But he has found his calling in being a basketball coach. It takes a while. But he knows that the number one thing about HBCUs, in case you haven't been paying attention to the story of how he got here, it's networking. That's how you have to build your recruiting. And he figures, look, I'm going to really connect with the kids that I have. I'm going to build a strong program. And then what's the best advertisement? Do you fellows know? Word of mouth. Exactly. It's word of mouth. So he figures, look, make the product. People will come. And the numbers back it up. In his first six seasons, 46 to 51, it was 80 and 55, which is totally respectable. You, you keep your job, I think. If you're a school with low expectations and you do that, no question that you're continuing to keep your job. He exceeds that win total in his next three seasons. His next three seasons, they go 93 and 27 from 53 to 56. So it, it's exactly, it's paying off. Over you've, 750. Mm-hmm, you've gotten people to buy in to the system. You've gotten people to understand there is something here. And this is when he starts to get some of his more notable alumni. There are a couple that I'm going to pull out here. The first one I'm going to pull out is a guy named Cleo Hill. From 57 to 61, he is playing with this increasingly good Winston-Salem State University team. They only get better from that 93 and 27 mark. And he gets enough attention with a small school performance to become the first ever HBCU player drafted in the first round by the NBA. He's drafted by the St. Louis Hawks. And unfortunately, he only plays one season there. Supposedly, the owner told the coach to kind of phase him out of their plan largely the story around the league at the time certainly was that he was forced out but nonetheless he does make that historic mark and unfortunately 
Cleo Hill kind of misses the boat on the peak of Winston-Salem State University, which is going to come just a couple years later, thanks to a South Philly native. Do you have any idea, Diaz, the South Philly native I'm about to enlist? I know exactly who you're going to say, because as soon as you said Winston Sta- uh, Winston-Salem, we're talking about Earl the Pearl Monroe, known as uh, Jesus on the Philadelphia playgrounds. One of my favorite scenes in all of cinema, honestly, is, um, and he got game, there's a scene where Jake Shuttlesworth, the father of the principal character, Jesus Shuttlesworth, they're walking down the boardwalk, and Jake, the father, is just telling a story about Earl the Pearl Monroe. And in that scene, he calls him Jesus of North Philadelphia, presumably because, you know, this is a film about with two black males as the center, you know, South Philly not necessarily is known for their African-American population, but North Philly is more so. So Spike Lee took a creative liberty there and said Earl the Pearl Monroe was Jesus of North Philadelphia. But he is, in fact, as you said, from South Philadelphia and one of the all time great ball handlers in basketball history. He's an incredible, incredible dribbler, incredible point guard until, as Jake Shuttlesworth says, then when he got the Knicks, they put the shackles on him on his game. But when he was able to play his freestyle like he was at Winston-Salem, I don't know if you have the statistic of what he averaged his senior year. Oh, yes. Ooh, He's still one of the all-time greatest yeah, Knicks. Back. So I do take some offense to that. He is still one of the all-time greatest Knicks, and it was on one of their only two championship teams ever. Okay. With the shackles on him and his game. Please, I have, before, I have no horse in this race. No, please keep fighting. This is great. This is great content. No, 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 no. no. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just quoting what, what Jake Shuttlesworth said, as portrayed by Denzel. Denzel, by the way. I, I learned that recently. Do you know it's not Denzel? Technically, it's Denzel. Know? Denzel Washington. Oh, God. That, that's giving me Lindsay Lohan vibes when I found out it was Lohan <laughs> and not Lohan. Well, um, uh, it is. You did correctly pronounce Earl Monroe, who does, in 1963, come to WSSU from South Philly. He struggles a lot in that freshman season. Um, he's brought because of exactly what you're saying, those ball handling skills. They run a very fast break based offense in Winston-Salem State University. Clarence Gaines is all about quickly transition, score when the defense isn't set, and that is exactly what he expects Earl Monroe to do, and, and it's just a tough acclimation for him. And at the end of that 1963 season, he wants to go home, and he tells Clarence Gaines as much, and Clarence Gaines calls Earl Monroe's mom Earl Monroe's mom has a stern talk with Earl Monroe. And Earl Monroe does come back to college. That first year when he was struggling, he averaged 7.1 points per game. His sophomore year, he averaged 23.2 points per game. That's pretty good. His junior year, he averaged 29.8 points per game. That's also really quite good. His senior year, he averaged 41.5. Oh, 41.6. 41. So I, I, what, here's all I'll say. The article I was reading said 41.5. We are splitting hairs at that point. Uh, he puts up 1,329 in the season. That's insane. That's... Spike Lee in the script does say 41.6. I also saw so 42.7, but I couldn't see the 40.7. The, the number that everyone agrees on, 1,329 points. He is still, to this day, the NCAA all-time points leader. They do go to a 31-1 record, and they make the D2 NCAA championship this year. They go on to win what is the first ever HBCU NCAA National Championship in basketball this year. In 1967, that Winston State Salem University Rams team go on and do it. And this with Clarence Bigowski's, I mean, this is 21 years into his career. Like, this is the undisputed climax. And I'm, we still have a couple decades to go. I'm just so glad because 
this sounded like it was building up to a classic Xavier, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it's better. Oh, well, I mean, it's me in the championship game and they lost by 30. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you guys bring the positive because uh, you can always count me <laughs> to bring the didn't quite get there. I, I think that has become my thing uh, unintentionally. <laughs> so I need to let you, you both do the positives. No, I mean, it's it largely positive. Earl Monroe goes on to have a phenomenal professional career. There is a little bit of a stumbling block early echoing what happened with Cleo Hill. Uh, he does not, after this incredible season, arguably one of the greatest college basketball seasons of all time, he does not make the U.S. national basketball team for the Pan Am Games that summer. And uh, coaches are quoted as saying, he's too street, too playground, too black. They said that willingly to newspapers. They also said, he has always left a very, very bad taste in my mouth. Just putting this out there. Not with their names. Couldn't find their names, but they are willingly saying this to reporters. Uh, So he does not make that national team. He does luckily go on to be an NBA championship player and a Hall of Fame. The too much playground thing reminds me of, have either of you seen Hoop Dreams? Absolutely, I've seen Hoop Dreams. Not in a long time, so I don't remember, but I definitely... Well, so, the, the, the coach of uh, St. Joe's, Gene Pinator, at one point says about Arthur Agee, who I don't want to ruin too much, but uh, he says about Arthur Agee, he has too much playground in him. Very very coded language uh, that somehow it, 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 it was there in the 60s, there in the 80s. Well, it's still and the again, the level to which it's coded, I mean, they say too black. Uh, so there is some parts that aren't as coded. Some of them are a little more in your face, but they did, they they do continue to borrow the coded language. All the success that they can accomplish is still going to come into question. Keep proving yourself. The the questions will never stop. Earl Monroe goes on to have that career and Clarence Gaines continues to coach, never reaches that championship height again, but he is still around for a long time. Now, the reason he doesn't reach that championship height again is, is something that happens to a lot of HBCU programs in the 70s and 80s as desegregation happens. Uh, it, it's a huge sap of talent from a lot of these schools. The talent pool just can't handle all of the programs now that are looking to siphon it. Uh, and so the 70s and 80s, there's very little to kind of say of note. Mostly winning seasons, but they are not doing anything on a national level. They're just winning a bunch of CIAA divisions, which is nothing to sniff at by any means. But it is kind of why Clarence Gaines is is kind of just in the background of all of this, continuing to coach into the 80s, his fourth decade, finishing his fourth decade of coaching. Uh, Still just kind of, so we're going to say 1987. He is now going into that year, uh, 64 years old. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's quite old. He's so old that (laughs) at one point in his career, they build the new like arena in Winston-Salem State University, they named this arena the C.E. Gaines Center. It's built in 1976, 30 years into his career. He coaches there for over a decade in the arena named for him. (laughs) That's fantastic. I love that so much. He's inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1982. And then he keeps coaching. And he is, by the way, when he's inducted into the 1982 Basketball Hall of Fame, the first coach to be inducted who was like exclusively a coach in black. Bill Russell, of course, coached the Celtics for a number of years, uh, but is, we can say, safely not in the Hall of Fame just for being a coach. Now, he starts to hit some big milestones in 1983. He gets his 700th win ever. In 1990, he gets his 800th win ever. He is stacking them, but he's getting old as we've alluded to. 
And this is when we've come to the, the third alumnus uh, of his tenure that I'd like to focus on. And that's a man by the name of Stephen A. Smith. And it's <laughs> yes, Stephen A. It's the Stephen A. Smith. Uh, yes. Stephen A. Smith, who in many ways is an architect of modern sports media landscape. Uh, I think it's, it's safe to say that. The take culture has overtaken us. And I can tell you exactly where Stephen A. Smith's take culture starts. Stephen A. Smith, New York native, he goes to the Fashion Institute of Technology for one year after high school. But once again, networking comes into play. A family friend arranges a tryout for him with Clarence Big House Gaines. So he goes down and he ends up trying out so well that he gets a scholarship to play as a point guard for the Winston-Salem State University team. He is starting to get a journalism at this time. Uh, he is also sometimes writing for their paper. At this time, as we've said, Clarence Gaines, he's getting up there in years. And Stephen A. Smith is worried about his coach's health. He reportedly tells him this in the locker room one time. He's, Clarence Gaines was having, you know, small strokes sometimes. That is something that happens at that age. Stephen A. Smith said, hey, I, I, I'm scared for you. I'm worried about your health, and I don't want you to kill yourself doing this. So I think you should step down. And he doesn't do that. So Stephen A. Smith writes a letter in the school newspaper that the coach that he is currently playing for on that school's team should step down. It is the, the, the greatest one origin story of the hot... Like, this is where the hot take culture begins. With Stephen A. Smith as a player saying, hey, my coach should step down in the school newspaper. I can, like, I can literally hear it like, now I have the utmost respect for Big House Games. He's a very close personal mentor for me. However, <laughs> however, <laughs> um, the school wants to expel him for it. It's like, this is a guy who has been at this school for 44 years. They want to expel Stephen A. Smith. And Clarence Gaines <laughs> sticks up for him. Clarence Gaines says, no, that's oh, one of my man. players. You're not expelling one of my players. He takes the development of young men so goddamn seriously. And that's a big reason of why he stuck on, honestly. Why he stuck around for so long was because of what he thought his function was, essentially. Like, winning, some other players had said, like, he, he would tell them that, and they're like, I'm winning, too. He's like, yeah, 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 that, too. Uh, but it was, it was about just making better people. And he did that for 47 years. He does finally retire in 1993. It takes him two years to mull over Stephen A. Smith's words, but finally they rattle around his head long enough. He's like, you know what? I think that, I think that loud, angry man was right, and it's time to hang it up with a final record of 828 wins and 447 losses. That is, at the time of his retiring, the second highest all-time. Only Adolph Rupp had had more at that point. He has fallen a little bit down the standings. He is currently 19th so, look, he's still one of the people that has had 800 or more wins. This is just college basketball has been happening this long, and, and eventually more people are going to stack up 800 wins. But when he retires second all-time in wins, after 47 years, all with the same school, um, it's, it's incredible. He gets his laurels. He gets so many uh, acknowledgments and honors over the next couple of years. Let's talk about some of them. First off, we've got the Clarence E. Gaines Center. He gets, as a native son of Kentucky, the highest honor that the state of Kentucky can honor. He becomes a Kentucky colonel. This is uh, a, a title granted by the governor of Kentucky. A title that people might be more familiar Incredible. with for a man named Harlan Sanders. 
Uh, Harlan Sanders, of course, was never a colonel in any army, but he was also a Kentucky colonel, and that's why Colonel Sanders is the mascot for KFC. Uh, he is the same level of colonel as our good man, Clarence Big House Gaines. He gets, uh, you know, related to all of that development of, of young men, he does get the Silver Buffalo Award. That is from the Boy Scouts of America. His award uh, honored, not annually or anything, just honored when they think there is someone worth honoring for the development of young men. There are two awards named after him. One of them is the CollegeInsider.com Clarence Gaines Award. It is for the best D2 college hoops coach. We were talking about a little bit earlier awards named after people. Well, there's one for Clarence Gaines. Here's the other one that I think is going to appeal to us a little bit more. He is the uh, namesake for the National Sports Media Association, or the NSMA Clarence Gaines Award, which is given to a coach of the year for head coaches who may not receive recognition from mainstream outlets that's i don't know more that's pretty good uh, more coded language i like yeah. it don staley won this in 2017 it is a good way yeah, to promote don staley. These we fuck it we all fucking love don staley here love don uh, staley. and it's a good way to promote those programs that otherwise yeah don't get as much but i'm just saying this is an award for people not getting mainstream recognition on a podcast where we try to look for people not getting mainstream recognition. I'm just saying, I'm just making a case here. Uh, mm-hmm. And I got one final case, and that's the halls that he's already in. He is in the Basketball Hall of Fame, as we mentioned. He's inducted in 1982. He is one of the 180-person inaugural class of the uh, College Basketball Hall of Fame when they are founded and bring those 180 people in 2006. But the PS de resistance. He is one of the very first members of the Clarence E. Big House Gaines Athletic Hall of Fame for Winston-Salem State University. <laughs> he is not just the namesake of the arena that he then coached in for 17 years after it was named after him in his 30th year of coaching. He is also the name of their Hall of Fame. And so I propose to the two of you that he should be added to one final hall. That is uh, the, the history. Did unfortunately pass away from a stroke in 2005 the old, surrounded by his wife Clara and their children, had a great life, was honored properly. But I think there is one more honor that we can add to the list. I love it. Thank you, James. That was that was fantastic. Especially oh, now one that last I thing think that I you, would... you are James A. Smith, you or Stephen A. Pilot, whatever you'd prefer. There is one other thing that I forget to mention about just the insanity of how much Clarence Gaines hustled. Uh, remember those three years where he was the everything for Winston-Salem State University? That is also when he was getting his master's by correspondence from Columbia University, which he received in 1950. Jesus. Clarence Big House Gaines, baby. Go Bears. So, I mean, the one thing I take from that is, like, look, people want to talk about, like, remote work and remote learning. Like, it's this fucking impossible thing these days. If motherfucking Big House Gaines could get an Ivy League master's degree in 1950 while doing all this shit down in Winston-Salem, let's be real. That's that's one takeaway for me. But I, I do think you already have my vote, even though I haven't even presented my own guy yet. There's a very compelling case. Just because we brought up Dawn Staley, I just want to say we don't appreciate enough how insane it is that she was like the starting point guard on the U.S. women's national team while also being the full-time head coach of Temple and leading them to by far the most successful period in Temple women's basketball history. Like, by far the most successful. And there's only one color medal that she's ever walked away from the Olympics with. There's only one. She's incredible. We we stand on Staley hard in the Philadelphia area. I will say I I love Aaron McKee. Great hire. But when it was time for Fran to go, 
if you're not at least interviewing Dawn Staley for this job, what the fuck are you doing? Like, she at least needs to be interviewed for it. That would have been a perfect coming home story. Maybe she would have been as successful as Big House Games. Who knows? I mean, here's the thing. It's going to take several decades to be as good as Big House Games. This is true. It is, it's not just a quality. It is also a quantity. Um, Remember when he was on a college football team that didn't allow a point? And that's just like a footnote in all of this? Yeah, that was like you're establishing his origin story. That could have been the whole thing. And that's what I, his his college career is like, oh, you think you know Clarence Big House Gaines? And then he just switches sports entirely. It's like, yeah, I'll try coaching football a little bit. Eh, It's all right, but this basketball. Which in college, he said, look, I was doing basketball to kill time when there wasn't football. (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, that is kind of, that's the genesis of basketball. Also, that was, they they went to, to Dr. Naismith and said, hey. We need something to keep these fucking big football players active in the winter when it's cold as shit and we can't go outside. And he came up with basketball, so that's almost fitting. Well, let's see if you can top Clarence Big House game. It's a big mountain to top. It's a big mountainous man to try and get over, but I have faith in you. Listen, listen it, it's a big mountainous man, and the only thing that I can possibly bring to the table that can compete with Big House game would be another... Large man, very renowned, very historic in his accomplishments. Also a two-sport man himself. Not quite the three-sport that, that Big House Gaines put off. But I am talking about an offensive tackle for Maryland State College, now known as Maryland Eastern Shore. UMES. A varsity letter winner at UMES in both basketball and football. A eight-time Pro Bowler for the Oakland Raiders, a four-time All-Pro, a member of the 1989 Pro Football Hall of Fame class, the first black head coach in the NFL modern era. I am talking about, of course, one Arthur Lee Shell Jr., better known as Art Shell. Shell, so, yeah. Shell, yeah. Art is in the building and. At 6'5", 265, one of the few people that I could have possibly brought to the table to compete with Big House Gaines. So, He's got a couple inches on him. So we're at, we're at least in that realm. If, that, if it picked up uh, me opening the can, I, I think we can keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> what am I drinking? That's for the viewer to decide. But what's not for the viewer to if you decide... Want, here's what I want to say. If you want to guess what he's drinking, he just called you viewers. <laughs> it's uh well you know this could be the launch of the youtube i don't know i don't know what craig has up his sleeve but regardless let's get back to the root of the issue and the root of the issue is mr art shell so art shell from charleston south carolina ends up going to school at maryland state college as i mentioned he is a varsity letter winner in both football and basketball. He's competing there from 1964 to 1968. He is a back-to-back All-American in 1966 and 1967, um, as well as getting All-Conference all three of his final seasons, so sophomore through senior year. Just an absolute dominant force on the offensive line. Despite this, as, as we've kind of alluded throughout here, you, know, you need to do 10 times as well to get half the recognition when you're competing in HBCU sometimes. So even though he's a two-time All-American, 
it's it's not quite enough for him to get a, a an elite draft spot. So he's drafted in the third round by the Oakland Raiders. What really is key to Archell's success as a player, you know, a lot of times you have like, all right, is this guy a better run blocker? Is this guy better at pass protection? Archell is the master of both worlds. Absolutely crushing, uh, opening up the pass for the running game while at the same time making sure that uh, Kenny Stabler has all the time he needs to throw while he's back there. So from 73 to 78, this is six straight seasons that he's on either the first or the second team All-Pro. So starting with his third season as a full-time starter up through um, 78, he's at least first or second team All-Pro every single one of those years. Yeah, I mean, that's like last year, that's a decade into the career. Exactly. Exactly. So, and you know, who's to say if he, if he would have gotten an opportunity earlier, like could have been eight straight, who knows? But in addition to that, he does make eight Pro Bowls, plays in 23 postseason games, makes it to eight AFC championship games, and also to two Super Bowls uh, in Super Bowl Eleven and Super Bowl Fifteen. So he ends up becoming a two-time Super Bowl champion. In particular, that first Super Bowl is one of the most famous performances by an offensive lineman in Super Bowl history because in Super Bowl Eleven, the Raiders were going up against the Vikings who at the time had the Purple People Eaters, yeah. the, the most dominant defensive front of that time, headed by Jim Marshall, who is regrettably known for running the wrong way and spiking the ball and getting the safety when he recovered a fumble <laughs> one time. But when he did know the right way to go, he was a hell of a defensive end, uh, one of the best in the league, and basically does not enter the Raiders' backfield for this entire Super Bowl. Archell just putting up a wall and absolutely forcing him out. He had a very impressive streak at the start of his career. So especially for an offensive lineman, he goes his first 156 pro games playing in each and every one of them with a start streak until he has a preseason injury in 1979, which does not knock him out for the year. He only misses the first five games. Um, and as soon as he's back, he starts another 51 game streak that, unfortunately ends with the injury that does mark the end of his career. Um, in 1982, he gets injured halfway through and ends up never plays another snap, which to me, that's always tragic. Like I at least appreciate like when a guy is able to come back from injury, at least get that somewhat swan song, like, like Mariano Rivera, for example, he was going to have his last season. He got injured and he said, fuck that. I'm going to come back and play one more ended on my terms. So for the, for the playing career, of Archa, at least. He does not quite get to end it on his terms. But, as I mentioned as I was introducing him, he is known at least as much, if not more so, for his coaching career. In 1989, he's been uh, an assistant coach with the Raiders for six years at this point. So, basically, Al Davis, whatever you want to say about Al Davis, he is Boy, a person that, he is an extremely loyal individual if you buy into the Raiders culture Al Davis is going to make sure that he takes care of you immediately upon retirement he converts to in the next season being the offensive line coach so from 83 to 89 Arshel is the offensive line coach and in 1989 the Raiders are being coached by Mike Shanahan who goes on to win two Super Bowls with the Broncos later on in his career but in 89 they're not off to the best start so they start one and three that year. And, you know, there's uh, obviously there's rumblings. Anytime the Raiders are off to a bad start, you never know what Al Davis is going to do. 
Art Shell is asleep in his bed on uh, on Monday night of this week. He gets a phone call, late night phone call, and so he's he's in his sleepy days. Picks up the phone, and it's Al Davis on the other line, and you know they exchange pleasantries really quick. And Al says, "Hey, I want to let you know, I'm thinking about making a change. I'm thinking about getting rid of Mike and making you the head coach. You've been a Raider your whole life." You embody what our culture is supposed to be. I think you're the right man for the job. Anyway, sleep on it. I'll call you tomorrow morning. Our show does not sleep a goddamn <laughs> wink the rest of this night. I just want to drop this bomb on you real quick. But, like, I mean, this is also extremely on brand for Al Davis, is it not? Oh, yeah. No, I, I believe this story 100%. <laughs> There's nothing about this that I have any doubt in at all. So Al Davis hangs up the phone. Archell is just sitting up in his bed, heart going a mile a minute for the rest of the night. And, you know, it does come back in the morning. You know, Archell had some time to think about it. And he says, you know, if you're going to make that decision, I, I accept. I will be the head coach. Mike Shanahan gets fired. Archell goes straight from offensive line coach up to head coach. As you can imagine, the, the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator are not too thrilled about this. There's a lot of other assistants that, we're very loyal to Mike Shanahan, and they're none too happy about it. But the one thing that you always say about him as both a player and as a coach, that he had remarkable calm. This is what anybody that's ever come across Art Shell, almost to a fault sometimes. Like they felt there were some times that, hey, maybe the players need a kick in the ass. But Art, Art is just very even keel. And he's able to sense that there is this not quite animosity, but tension, I guess you could say. Uh, tension the, sounds like absolutely the correct word. So the, there's tension in the air. And Art, in just his first address to the assistants, says, I know that this might not be a popular appointment. I myself didn't know if I was ready. But we're a Raider family. Mr. Davis trusted me. And if you guys ever want to talk to me about this or anything, or if you, have any, if you think I'm doing anything wrong, my office door is always open. Because this was midseason, there was a there was a big concern that the assistants might leave in solidarity with Shanahan. Not a single person leaves the staff after Archell says this. He rallies the troops. Everybody gets on board. And coincidentally enough, a one in three start is a one in three start. But the Raiders happen to be playing the Jets on Monday Night Football. <laughs> and if there's anything that Al Davis loves, it's a good story. So he hires the first full-time black head coach in this lead-up to Monday Night Football. And it should be noted, this is not your typical Monday Night Football matchup in terms of marquee teams. As I mentioned, the Raiders started 1-3. They're in last place in the AFC West. The Jets, hard to believe, we're in last place in the AFC East. So, so this is this is a precursor to modern day Monday night football, which now also sucks. But at the time, as I understand it, this was the big deal. It was supposed to be, yeah. Like now Sunday yeah. night football is the premier game. Monday night is more of like a hey, remember when this was important? Hey, remember uh, how we have to make sure everyone gets on primetime at least once? The Jets exactly. and the Raiders did have a bit of a rivalry at the at the time, so I kind of get that. Like they, I mean, you could you could tell me the Jets and Raiders were playing in Monday Night Football this year, and I would say, yeah, that sounds like an absolutely appropriate matchup. It's because they were two of the best teams in the AFL, so they met each right. other a bunch of times. When the Jets won Super Bowl three, they later said that the Raiders were a much tougher opponent in the AFL championship game than the Baltimore Colts were. Heard it both ways. 
Who's to say? You know, we're not. Who's we're not say? here. Who's to say? We're not here to relitigate for at least a few more episodes. So you know, let's get back to the task at hand. You know, we're entering this Monday night matchup. Archell has just been named the first black head coach in the modern NFL era, and there's a lot of eyeballs in this game. But as you can imagine, in a game between two last place teams, it's not a great first half. In fact, it is scoreless <laughs> entering halftime, zero-zero. Uh, and you know, as I've mentioned, Archell is. An empath. He's able to get the feel of the room that he's in. And he knew right from the get-go, like, my players are pressing too hard. Um, they're tight. They want to win the game for me. So he goes into the locker room, gives his speech to the team. But the one line that sticks out is, listen, I want to win this game too, but not for me. I want to win it for the Raiders. So relax and play smart. And this really goes along with Archell's entire ethos in his professional career. He is a Raider man. That's all he cares about. He cares about the Raider culture, cares about honoring the Raiders, wants to do the right thing for the Raiders. And sure enough, his words of wisdom turn the team around. There's a, they have a 73-yard touchdown pass to put them on the board coming right out. The, the Jets go down into scoring territory. They get a pick six. They run it back. They end up winning... 14 to 7 in a game that goes down in history. Afterwards, the locker room is ecstatic, not just because of the win for Shell, but again, this is a one and three team, and now you're two and three. And all of a sudden, got a chance to build some momentum here. Art Shell says in particular, Howie Long was the player that was most effusive in the in the celebration with him afterwards. Just a, a great, a great atmosphere right after. And they go on to have a Pretty good rest of the season. So they started one and three. Archell goes seven and five after taking over. So they finish eight and eight. They don't make the playoffs. There is one game that stands out. So again, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the Jets game because not only is Archell the first black head coach in this game, this is also not the first game that Johnny Greer has done, but Johnny Greer is in his first season as the first black referee in the NFL. And I want to clarify, not first black official. There had been black line judges, back judges, umpires, so on and so forth. But chief referee. The first crew chief, the first head of an officiating crew, Johnny Greer. So this is the first season that he's taken over. And Johnny Greer was actually, it was his crew that was on the game for the 1988 Monday Night Football debut. As you can guess, there's a lot of racism back then. But Archell is a person that takes it in stride. So he gets a, a letter after the game and says, you and your N-word referee cheated the Jets out of that game. So Archell just called up Greer and said, you know, you're my N-word, right? And <laughs> the humor with which he approaches it, because he like read the letter to him and then said that afterwards. They both chuckled. It was their way of mocking the hatred. That's the way that they both talk about it. But I just I just thought that was a funny anecdote to speak to how, again, calm Art Shell is. You know, he's getting this these hate mail and he's reading it to his buddy like it's just like whatever the fuck. In his second season, he goes on and actually has his most successful season as a head coach for the Raiders. Raiders go 12 and four. They advance to the AFC championship game where they do lose to the Buffalo Bills and we all know what happened to the Bills in the Super Bowl because, I mean, we all know. Yeah, I was, I was about to say which one, but 
Yeah, that was 1990. Oh, well, so this, this was the Scott Norwood game. This is the first? Oh. That's the Scott Norwood. So that's brutal. But Archell has a very successful tenure as the head coach of the Raiders. Goes 9-7 and seven the next year. They make the playoffs. They lose. They go 7-9. and nine, Don't make the playoffs. 10-6 and in 93. They get to the AFC Divisional uh, where they lose to the Bills again. And in 94, they go 9-7 and seven, but don't quite make the playoffs. At this point, Al Davis thinks that they just need a culture shift. Doesn't think that Archell's getting the job done anymore. So he does fire Archell. And Al Davis later says that he believes this was a mistake. Probably was. Also, just kind of a weird trend that we can kind of see through history now where Brian Flores was just fired with a winning record. Lovey Smith was fired with a winning record. Jim, Jim Caldwell got the Detroit Lions to the playoffs. His, his uh, firing and his subsequent not rehiring as a head coach is maybe the most absurd coaching thing right now in, in sports. Well, so that that's it's, it's interesting you say that because so like the reason why I bring this up is, you know, to, to highlight that, you know, why we should celebrate Archell and the fact that he was able to be the first black head coach of the modern era. What a lot of sociologists were saying at the time was, you know, I'm not concerned about firsts. I'm concerned about seconds. I'm concerned about thirds, fourths, fifths, because there's going to be a first of everything. But what happens after that? That's what's going to reflect that there's actually growth. And I mean, the whole Brian Flores thing this offseason just illuminates how far we still have to go. But there still always needs to be the first person to to break down that door and get in. And that's Art Shell. Art Shell does get one more season as a head coach. In 2006, Al Davis says, let's run it back. He brings back Art Shell. And the Raiders have a great defense that year. And I lead with the good thing because they went two and fourteen, and Ooh, which means if they had a good defense and they went two and fourteen, that was an unwatchable offense. This is just about as bad as it gets. This is the season that led to them getting Jamarcus Russell. Oh, oh and so it's just going to get worse. Oh, poor Raiders fans. So a a well intentioned reunion, but ultimately not successful one. That was the only season that Archell got in his second tenure. He did get fired after that. Perhaps more justifiably so. I don't think it's a hot take to say the second time. At any rate, he was in the Pro Football Hall of Fame strictly based on his play and then does go on to break down the the barrier in head coaching office for the NFL. Pretty successful tenure, but the, 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 the one thing that stuck out in my research is just a, how everybody that ever came across him just remarks on how calm he is, like to a fault, as I mentioned. The, the very definition of a player's coach, really. The other thing is, in reading his Hall of Fame speech when he made the Hall of Fame in 89, you know, I was trying to look for one quote that could necessarily stand out, but more so the theme that I got from it was just every single line is thanking his family and thanking the Raiders. Everything is just his family, the Raiders. Family, Raiders. Dom Toretto, if Dom Toretto was a boundary-breaking black lineman and then coach. Just very very singularly focused. And Archell, thankfully, still with us. 
prefers to stay out of the limelight, which I, I, I think is is very, very on brand for, for everything we've heard about him. But the, the the only person that I could bring up in comparison to Big House Gaines is a big left tackle that dominated for the 70s. Was named to the 1970s All-Decade team. I should mention that as well. Very nice. So Hall of Fame talent, great coach, barrier breaker, Art Shell, for your consideration, even though I'm probably voting big house games but well here i mean yeah. let's let's not mince words friends let's get right down to brass tacks unless unless anyone's got anything else to say about our show it is a it is a shame that our shell went to maryland state instead of university of maryland because he could have been a terrapin shell could have been a terrapin and that would oh okay it took me a second but i i, I see what you're putting down it's I've I've made a lot of very Maryland and Baltimore specific things. This has been fun for me. I specifically went for someone from Morgan State so I could talk about Morgan and Baltimore. Anyway, back to brass tacks. This right, is a two so, horse race, I think. So I don't uh, mean to disrespect Richie Weeks. No, 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 no. So they, this is what I'm gonna say. Richie Weeks and Archell starred at HBCUs. Clarence Big House Gaines gave his whole life to them including essentially making one exist. Like, Winston-Salem State, you said it had 75 men at it. It, it, it is a school of 5,000-plus at this point. With some of the... With, I, I, I mean, it's Clarence Gates. Playing for 17 years in an arena that was built 30 years into your career and named after you, that's the craziest thing to me. This is just an absolutely insane career. It, that's wild. It's wild. Okay. Well, shit. I, I mean, I, I don't want to take the, uh, the pleasure of, of posthumously welcoming our friend. I'll, I'll pass that over to you, Diaz. Well, James, thank you for the wonderful presentation on our newest inductee, the coach of. It's for the record. It's Clara Gaines is the widow. If we want to address the family, Clara, if you'd like to come on and accept this. Extremely prestigious award, probably the most prestigious award that your late husband has ever received. You are welcome on the podcast at any time. But without further ado, Clarence Big House Gaines, welcome to the Hall of Guy. Extremely deserved and extremely earned. And hey, here's a fun thing you can do this week is you can watch broadcast from Baltimore, a CIAA basketball tournament that is uh, currently taking place here at Royal Farms Arena, uh, featuring, in the men's bracket, your number three seeded Winston-Salem State University Rams. Uh, the women's Winston-Salem State University team ranked 12th, not doing quite as well, but hey, they're playing in Baltimore as we speak. That's going through two more days at the time we record this, so it will have taken place by the time you're listening to this, so I guess you can't do it, but I hope that you did in the last week or so. We are communicating to you telepathically right now. All you listeners, all you loyal subscribers, do it. Our one friend in the UK, please turn on some, <laughs> some weird illegal stream of the CIAA tournament and, and watch it to you broadcast live from Charm City, baby. That's all I got for you folks. Do either of you gentlemen have any last parting words you want to share? Uh, nothing for me. I, so I wanted to do it earlier, but just like people need to appreciate how many great athletes went to HBCUs. Like, so we touched on Earl Monroe. You got the greatest running back of all time, potentially, in Walter Payton, went to Jackson State. You got potentially the greatest wide receiver of all time. Well, not potentially, I think indisputably. Jerry Rice went to yeah. Mississippi Valley yeah, yeah, yeah. State. 
Michael Strahan, one of the all-time great defensive linemen, went to Texas Southern. Ben Wallace, Virginia Union. Earl of Pro Monroe, Winston-Salem State. Deion Sanders now taking over Jackson State, flipping the, the narrative back on his head. We love to see it. Steve McNair, God always say Steve McNair. So many incredible athletes have gone to these HBCUs, and it was good to celebrate some of the, the figures of the past today. And it's also very exciting to see the, the renaissance, so to speak, um, of, of some of the HBCUs, particularly led by Deion Sanders down at Jackson State. So we love to see it. We do, and we hope you love listening to this, and we hope that you'll choose to join us again next time. Uh, I'm James. I'm Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Mike Breen once said, way downtown. Yeah! <laughs>